This open source conversation with the political economist Haris Gazdar is the sixth in an audio series we're calling Another Pakistan, recorded in midsummer 2011. It's a co-production of the Watson Institute at Brown University and the Asia Society. I'm Christopher Leiden in Karachi with Haris Gazdar. At home, we'd call you an independent economic researcher. In Karachi, you are called a man of judgment and vision and the long view. Imagine where we are going, where we might be in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, where we don't want to be in Pakistan. Yeah, so I'll start with 30 years because I think that's easy because it's things, certain things can change and certain things don't change. And there is a little bit of certainty about what doesn't change over 30 years. So what doesn't change is geography. Mm. And if we can also assume that um, China and India will exist and there will be powerful economic uh, forces as they keep growing. So we'll have two very large growing economies to our east and northeast. And both of them are thirsty for energy resources. Mm. And we have the two largest regions with energy surpluses to our west and to our southwest. So we happen to be right in the middle of this. And I think that will define our economic future. In the moment, we're all preoccupied with this rather tough pushing back and forth, rhetorically anyway, between the Pakistan army, the ISI, the Pentagon, the Obama administration, Mrs. Clinton, and all that. Uh, decode it for us in the long term, in the economic and the geographic perspective. So the Americans have uh, had a policy since the 1950s of um, very close... Uh, alliance with the military in Pakistan. Yes. And uh, it's been a policy that has served them well. How so? And Count it up. Well, I mean, it's it was a very important uh, safe place for them to have during the Cold War. It helped them to fight the Russians in Afghanistan during the 1980s. It helped. Initially, their plan was to use Pakistan as part of their security arrangement in the Middle East. Now, that didn't work out as planned, but, uh, you know, the Shah of Iran was more important at some stage, and then Saudi Arabia, and then Israel, but uh, nevertheless, that also remained. So, Pakistan provided them some um, security and some support, a lot of support in their Cold War strategy. But uh, then, you know, things have gone wrong. They've realized that uh, the Pakistani military has not been able to make a transition. So like the Americans, uh, everyone actually basically invests in uh, rogue forces. Everybody does. All, all major powers do. The Americans do it a lot more. They, they, they have it to a fine art. It's called, um, it's a doctrine called uh, plausible deniability. Mm. So it undermines, of course, democracy at home. It also undermines legality in, in international relations. But it's a very effective tool for promotion of foreign policy interests. So the Americans, I think, my, my view is that they developed it because they were 
awed by the success of the communist movement where communist parties across the world quite often coordinated foreign policy with the soviet union sometimes with china so there kind of the american uh, the cia's answer to that was you know the mujahideen in afghanistan the contras in nicaragua and the uh, el salvador characters and you know all kinds of people all over the place uh, so this whole doctrine is used very effectively but, but how then, does it apply to pakistan so pakistan We're... becomes very very adapted it pakistan starts started using this very early on well before the americans got involved here they start using it in 1948 when the pakistani armed forces were not well developed so the first war that pakistan had with india was one of plausible deniability where armed so called armed volunteers were sent across to do stuff in kashmir in kashmir yes now some of it were kind of genuine freedom fighters and some of them were armed mercenaries and but the point is that you have um, you know lots of firewalls between a state party and actual combatants on the ground mm-hmm. and lots of nonlinearity lots of things that can go wrong along the way but you hope that certain some of your foreign policy objectives will be met through that so pakistan already had experience with that now the difference between the americans and the pakistanis is that american system is very mature where you can conduct u turns you know 180 turns in policy direction in organizations and there is enough strength maturity resilience in the political system and in the gov- government systems to basically withstand that mm. change so in pakistan it was not possible in pakistan all of the the entire kind of infrastructure that was built up for this war it just took off it just had a life of its own mm. it is uh, it has an overbearing presence in economy in society everywhere so the american doctrine of plausible deniability it uh, insulates very large segments of american governance You see, I mean, you have cases like the Oliver North case. You have many other cases, and then you know there is also there are ways of putting an end to operations that go uh, that take off on their own. So there is some check and balance. So you can have long periods of kind of drift, and then there are ways in which you bring it back. And I think that's the maturity of the political system there. Do I get it right? Pakistan hires in effect its own rogue elements its jihadis in Kashmir or elsewhere are you suggesting that the United States has hired Pakistan as a kind of rogue element of its own and both of them face the tendency of these rogue elements to go wild get out of control no, the United States Pakistan and Saudi Arabia they came together to construct this whole chain of plausible deniability let's just call it that okay so when we call them rogue element then we um, give the impression that somehow these people are not instruments of policy when something is rogue it means that it's acting on its own ah uh, yeah right so let's just uh, work with what we know what we know is that there is a whole chain of plausible deniability mm. now in that chain when you outsource so much as you know i mean if you even do it in a building job you know you're having some repairs in any house and it's subcontracted down to the third subcontractor right. 
well, perhaps what you wanted would not be done. <laughs> right? Because the way that instructions are passed down and people act in their own way. So there will be roguishness even in the normal scheme of things. Hmm. There will be elements that will not be exactly working to that. So th that, you know, this old Napoleonic model of regimented armies is replaced here in the late Cold War by this model of plausible deniability hmm. that will confront these uh, Napoleonic armies and sometimes to very strong effect. Now, the point is that the Americans did a big change. The Italians did the change. The Spaniards did it. Everyone did it. Everybody was doing this, right? The fascists were, you know, they were part of the American system of controlling Italy, the post-fascists. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you have a system of change. You make major investments in that. And once you make those investments, then you expect things to now follow a different policy. So now we follow, have, let's have liberal democracy in Europe. Right? So this, what I'm saying is that there's nothing peculiar about what was going on here. Of course, it was completely illegal, very anti-democratic, and you know, very, very damaging to our society. Yes, all of that. But that's a different political view. I'm saying that in terms of you know, the, the modern ways of governance, there was nothing peculiar. Neither what the Americans did, or what the Pakistanis did, or what the Saudis did, except that when you do these things in the U U.S., or in Italy, or in France, or in the Greece, those economies develop and other things are happening, and this is then relegated into being a small part of the overall picture. It, you know, mm -hmm. The tail does not back the dog. So in Pakistan, where it's a relatively underdeveloped political system, very violent uh, and you know, constant interruptions by the military, um, killing of political leaders, this kind of instability. So here, uh, and also then the, 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 the volume of investment in plausible you know, deniability compared to the economy and society. So this is very, very big. It was not marginal. It, it was the mainstream. So the tail now is wagging the dog. So now this is what we are left with. The, otherwise, the structure of the problem is not very different. But, you know, the Americans disinvested in many, many um, nasties who were nurtured for one reason or the other in different countries. And uh, they even took to trial, you know, this man was taken. I don't know if he was convicted, but this man who was running the Iran-Contra operation, this, I think Oliver North, I think he was probably convicted in the American court also. Oliver North was, but there were, there were other big gun runners and operators, contractors too. Yes, yes. But what they do is, see, the, the system allows you to draw a line. Okay, so now we convict one guy, we draw a line, I see. and then we move on. So in Pakistan, we can't draw that line and move on because this tail is bigger than the dog. So now you need to do something special. You need, so, you know, you have, uh, you're going through this process now. So the Americans carried on with this. In between, this thing came, this plausible deniability business. This carried on. Then by 2001, they had to deal with the situation in nine, after 9-11. So, of course, they are going to attack Afghanistan. Everyone knew it, right? The moment it happened, the moment those buildings came down, those people were killed, of course, Afghanistan, how can Osama bin Laden remain safe in Afghanistan? It's just not possible. So there was going to be war in Afghanistan. And the Pakistani military, they said, yes, we agree to everything. Mm. And immediately... 
because they're very skilled. They had been, this is what they had been skilled at. I don't think they're very skilled at fighting conventional wars, but they're very skilled at this. So immediately they thought, okay, now what's the plan B? Plausible deniability. This is what they've learned. They've learned really well. Now, by around 2005, the Americans say, all right, it's, you know, we're not buying this anymore. So in 2001, this happens, this war happens. The Pakistani military says, fine, everything is fine. We're going to do this. In 2003, they see a moment of opportunity. The Americans, they go to Iraq. They forget about Afghanistan. You know, very small things that we read about. It's all part of the record that, you know, specialist teams of people who are working here and there pulled out, sent to Iraq. So what is the signal? Signal is that it's not serious. So they said, okay, we play our own game. By then, you know, by 2005, six, the whole thing is fully matured and now the Americans are saying that you can't, you're playing a double game with us. Well, they've always played a double game and you knew it. Everybody plays a double game with everyone. <laughs> that was your job. <laughs> yes, that's your job. That's what you're trained to do. The point is that you gave them an opportunity to play a double game and they did. I think ultimately they made a miscalculation, the Pakistanis. Because they should have done what the Americans did at the end of the Cold War. Pakistanis should have done that ages ago, which was to draw a line and to move on. They were not able to move on. They kept nurturing the tail. The tail became very big. Now tail is wagging everything. When Osama bin Laden turns up in Abbottabad, what does that do for plausible deniability, the whole history in the past? This is what they're saying, that, look, I mean, we are going to puncture the plausibility of your deniability. <laughs> Right, so because it's hurting them now, there was a time when it helped them. Now it's hurting them. So for a long time, they gave the Pakistani military an opportunity mm. to do course correction. Now they're not doing it for whatever reason. They're still giving them opportunity for, to do course correction, but nevertheless, doing a bit of puncturing as well. So this is what they have to do. You spoke of the person who's outsourcing the renovation of his own house, and after three, four degrees, he's lost control of the project. Who's in control of the project here now? What this whole, this tail dog wag business is, it's like instruments in an orchestra. There are lots of people. Okay. And, you know, every, somebody's got a trumpet and somebody's got a violin and somebody's got a bass. You know, they've got different things and they're all making noise. And then somebody emerges and says, you know, I'm the conductor and tuck, tuck, you know, and the music starts. So the, so there's a conductor and there's somebody who's paying for it. Hmm. Somebody who's paying for the music. So, so that someone is direct, directing all of these different instruments to some political purpose. Of course, when, you, when that whole thing is going, even then, you know, you have virtuoso performances by individuals. <laughs> yes. So you still, you have kind of these, you know, subcontractors, you know, who say, okay, I think... I'm going to paint it like that and, you know, you know, in the end, maybe the client likes that. It's a bit artistic. So I think what happened in around 1998 is that uh, one of the elements in this kind of uh, proto-orchestra decided to, you know, make a grab for the conductor's Baton. Mm. And I think that was Al-Qaeda. So Al-Qaeda is this organization of Arab jihadis, very well financed, with very close links with um, Saudis, 
they are all Saudis anyway. So they are, uh, and I think, probably quite proficient in uh, the art of warfare, much more so than many other groups. And I think they decided that uh, they are going to challenge the Pakistani state players for leadership and they they carried out these attacks that killed a lot of people in Africa and I think also in um, Oman but a lot of people were killed in Africa yes so I think that was Tanzania their, and that's right so they they were um, I think uh, this was their declaration that they will act autonomously the Pakistani agencies have no interest in killing a lot of people in Africa I'm trying to think of this metaphor of the orchestra with all its different, its flutes, its piccolos, its big drums and various other things, and you want to have them all for the grand finale or you want to be able to call on any one of them. Who's composing this symphony? The symphony was initially composed by the Americans, the Saudis, and the Pakistanis against Soviet Union. Hmm. Then the Pakistanis thought that we are composing the symphony in Afghanistan and then in India. Then the Arabs thought that actually... Uh, we are the ones with the, ones with the money. This is bloody impoverished people. <laughs> Why should they compose? Uh, you know, play our song. We will give you the 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 music sheets, and we will do the conducting because we are giving the money. So it's you know it's like that, and a lot of it is just you know improvised performances where mm. things go out of hand. But you see, you're asking the bandmaster to crack down. You're telling the grand, the bandmaster that you know you got to stop this. You got to take the instrument back from this character and perhaps kill this character or put him in jail. And that nobody's willing to do until they see some, uh, you know, resolve in the purpose. And in the meantime, the band's got to be ready to play anything. Is what you're saying? Well, they'll play, but not anything. But obviously, you know, they'll play according to you know, what their training is, according to, you know, so they, they won't go too far away from, I mean, they won't tomorrow start working for, let's say, some Japanese multinational. They might, I don't know. But, you know, there are certain limits within which they will operate. But, um, yeah, of course, a lot of them just work for money. Some of them have some ideological issues. Some of them want to say, oh, we'll, we'll do certain things for you, but other things uh, we'll do for ourselves. So there's one group that says, yes, we will do some stuff for you as long as you allow us to kill some Shias somewhere else. Okay, so they like to kill Shias. That's their, that's their music for themselves, and they'll do something else for mm. somebody else as well. So there are lots of these different things. Harris Gozdar, this begins to make a certain... I begin to, I begin to see the picture you're drawing. All of these jihadis, counter-jihadis, variations on jihadis, good jihadis, bad jihadis are something like our mafia in the United States. There's the New Orleans mafia or the Jamaican mafia or the drug mafia or the money mafia or the Chicago mafia. And we need them all. We might have to call on any of them for different jobs. In the Kennedy administration, it seems incredible now, but the Chicago mafia's favorite girl became the president's favorite girl from time to time. And the Kennedy administration sent some mafiosi into Cuba to get rid of Castro, and they may well have been undone, you know, in the assassination by the mafia. So you're saying that's the world in which Pakistan plays this ambivalent but necessary role? 
Yes, yes. That's where everyone is actually. Yes. It's just that we happen to focus on Pakistan and everything is quite visible now. So we can speak about it in this way. Hmm. So, <laughs> remind us, who needs these mafias? And who tells them, who keeps them under control? Sort of, they're ready, but under control. Look, I mean, the, the world doesn't function according to rules. Economies can't function simply by following rules. A lot of things happen outside the rules. In some places, a lot more happens outside the rules. And perhaps because your purposes are uh, more than a normal political system can tolerate. So nevertheless, so you have these organizations. And then once in a while, you know, these organizations will, they will uh, outlive their usefulness. Sometimes mm. they will become too big for the boots. And sometimes for no other reason except to teach everyone who's boss, you send out the untouchables and take a few of them out. Mm. You send Elliot Ness to Chicago once. You have to send them, maybe once, maybe more, but you have to basically... Otherwise, how else do these people know that they are not the conductors or the bandmasters? You know, they have to be convinced that they're not. They have to be convinced that somebody is more powerful than them. So if you're going to uh, tolerate a lot of organizations that will operate outside the rules. You're also, just imagine that you're actually tolerating a culture uh, of some level of immunity. Hmm. And that can really get to some people. And they can begin to think much above their stations. Now, a mature political system corrects these things before they start to devour it. So that's that's how a system survives. That's how a political system survives. So in all, and, you know, don't get me wrong... It's not a moral position. This is amoral. What I'm saying is amoral. This is how power is. So I'm not saying that morally this is justified. It's just this is how it happens. So if we ignore this is how political power operates, then we're not understanding, you know, how, how life is. So you'll have, but, you know, political power have, will have to assert itself and will have to crush them once in a while, in some of them, so that um, general order is... Uh, maintained. And that's where we are roughly in the American showdown with the ISI in Pakistan. I suppose, yes. I think that um, in some ways that's what is happening, that the ISI is part of, it is itself part of the, the American system of plausible deniability, and I think they now have to give an account of themselves. Hmm. Does an economist have a view on the drone war? The use of these robots. By, okay, by I think okay, drone. I think look. I mean, it's not an economist view. It's actually okay. It's a view. It's, it's um, let's yeah. Okay, fine. It's a, it's an economist's view. So the idea is this: that the Americans tell the Pakistanis that there are certain people in your territory who are causing us great harm, and uh, can you can you do something about that? So the Pakistanis, they start a military operation in these areas in, I think, 2002 or three. And uh, how do they do it? Very crudely, get everyone out, you know, use aeroplanes, use uh, heavy artillery, kill a lot of people. So, so this whole uh, thing in Pakistan against drones, firstly that it's a violation of sovereignty, then it's killing a lot of people. 
The sad fact is that if the Pakistani military conducts these operations, even if it was willing to do so, it actually kills a lot more civilians because the technology they use is heavy artillery, you know, displacing an entire population and then sending in the air force. So sadly, it is the case that these drones, you know, we don't know enough, but from what we do know is they seem to cause less civilian damage than the alternative. Harris Gosdar, come back to the beginning of a kind of a 30-year fantasy of where Pakistan is going. You were speaking about being situated geographically between the all-purpose economic giants India and China and the great sources of oil to the West. A very nice place to be doing business in a, in a certain way. What business will you be doing in Pakistan in 30 years, do you think? We'll have pipelines going across. If okay. this, this, this happens, then we have pipelines going across. We have trade going there. We have basically a service station economy and making lots of money. Plus, we have now the fifth largest reserves of coal in the world, which we want to develop. And of course, the, by the way, the Americans are blocking that also. So that's not very good for us. They're saying that it's, uh, you know, it's going against our uh, clean environment policies. Right. But they've just given uh, a go-ahead to some, a similar thing in South Africa. They're not doing it here. So, so that's, if it doesn't happen, then of course, you know, like this now, this perpetual warfare, this threat of war, this, this whole fear of nuclear war, a lot of poverty, this can also carry on for the next 30 years. Hmm. You want to bet? No, of course not. <laughs> this is hugely interesting. Pakistan is the land of conspiracy theories, but yours might be the most sophisticated um, and plausible we've heard. I hope it's not a conspiracy theory. I hope that it's most of what I've said can be well, it's a, documented. But it's a grand theory of a kind of orchestral chaos. You've got to be ready to play Stravinsky, maybe Mozart now and then, but music you've never imagined. Yes, but I think that now the more and more that we learn about these organizations, it's, I think it's becoming a very, very plausible view. I think that in a few years, this will be the common sense view of how this this whole network of organizations operate. Harish Kozdar, it's fascinating that you have to come to Karachi to hear this kind of analysis of American politics and global politics. We're glad we came. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thanks for coming. Ben Mandelkern produced and edited this conversation in Karachi with the political economist Haris Gazdar. Our series, Another Pakistan, is a co-production of the Watson Institute and the Asia Society. Zarmine Ansari is our producer in Pakistan, thanks also to Bina Sarwar of the Jung Media Group. The conversations continue from South Asia and also online. Listeners, please feedback your views, your Pakistan, with a comment on our website, radioopensource.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. Thank you for being part of the Open Source Conversation.